0: There is no light Welcome to Valley Christian Church. We hope you enjoy this message and we would love for you to join us on Sunday mornings at 1030. We're located at 432 East Pleasant in Tulare. After listening to this message, take a moment to browse our website for current and upcoming events. It is our prayer that ultimately you learn to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So I have a question for you this morning. In your opinion, what is church all about today? I mean, obviously, many of us would be, you know, would be saying stuff like worshiping God. I mean, that would be obvious. Learning who God is, getting into His Word, and then maybe what He wants from us, right? I mean, that's pretty, that's the Sunday school answer, and Sunday school answers are, are good sometimes. You know, God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, you know, Those are Sunday school answers. That's good. But one thing I think that's not so obvious is relationships. The church is about relationships. It's about the relationship that Jesus has with us. It's about the relationship that we have with each other as Christians in the body of Christ. Because I've seen this throughout many different churches, You can sit in the seats, you can listen to the sermons, but you can miss something. You can miss God transforming us if we don't become a part of each other. If we don't build those relationships, something gets lost. Because Jesus wants to touch us both individually and also as a large group. And I think as we go through these seven churches of Revelation, I think that's one of the things that that Jesus really focuses on is what are they doing as a group? Because he doesn't come to them and say, well, there's a few individuals within your church that I have a problem with because of this. No, he comes and says, I have a problem. You're doing great in this area as a church, but in this area I have a problem with what you're doing as a church. He doesn't say, oh, I have a problem with so-and-so and -and -and so-and-so. If we want Jesus to use us, then we have to offer ourselves up to be used. How many of us would say, I want to be used by God? Yeah, I mean, most of us, again, that's a Sunday school answer. Most of us would raise our hand, right? Or at least go, yeah, i raise my hand. Well, great. You're in the right place this morning because it begins with those relationships because the relationships say a lot about us. It begins with Jesus, and it spills over to others. My question is this. If Jesus were to sit down and write a letter to us, what would he say? He's writing to the seven churches of Revelation, and we've gone over two of them, and they're online if you've missed them. But if he were to write a letter to us, what would he say? Well, let's set the picture here. We're in Revelations 2.17 uh, this, uh, this morning, and, and Revelations is one of those books very difficult to understand, but this passage, this area is, is, is really a good area uh, for us to really uh, there, there's no ifs, ands, or buts here. We, we totally understand this uh, what he's trying to say. The apostle John is the last living apostle. All the others have been killed uh, for what they believe in. Peter was crucified upside down. Paul was was beheaded. Andrew was shot an arrow, uh, with an arrow in India. So he's the last living apostle. And he was dipped in oil because they wanted to kill him. But he didn't die, he was burned. And they, they banished him to the island of, of Patmos where he would live out the rest of his days. Uh, and we talked about kind of imagining the scars that's on his body and, and him just continually, continually worshiping Jesus. No matter what pain he'd been through in life, and he'd been through a lot. One day he's worshiping Jesus, and a voice literally, you know, in a sense comes out of nowhere John, take a letter. I know, I don't sound like God. I wonder what God would sound like. It would scare me. I'd go running if I had a voice like that. I mean, he, he turns around and he sees the glorified, the, the resurrected Jesus sitting on the throne. And, and it's different than the pictures that we see today. We, you know, some people see the solemn Jesus, you know, different pictures of Jesus. They always saw I love the laughing Jesus. I mean, because I really think that Jesus wants us to have a good time. I, I think that, that he enjoys when we have a good time. I can imagine Jesus with the disciples laughing a lot, having a good time with them. But this is a different Jesus. This is a snow-white hair Jesus that represents the wisdom. This is the white robe on that represents his holiness, the gold sash that, you know, that says, I'm the high priest now. The you know, eyes were a flaming fire and the feet were like a glowing hot metal. And in the middle, there's seven lampstands and, and he's got seven stars in his right hand that represent the seven churches and, and, a, and a two-edged sword. Think of a, you know, like a you know, sword from, from the Middle Ages. A two-edged sword coming, you know, coming out of his mouth as he spoke. Very pointed, really cut through the truth. And this is what he says. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write... These are the words of him who has a sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. So we've got we to kind of stop right there. I mean... Wherever Pergamum is, and they actually know where it is, but but wherever it is, it's really not a nice place to live. I mean, would you think? I mean, Satan's throne. This is where Satan lived. It's not a vacation spot. It's not somewhere where I'm looking on Expedia trying to get tickets to go to. I mean, he didn't just visit that often. This is where he lived, Jesus said. He was there. It's not a nice place where Satan's throne is. I mean, this is in present-day Turkey. It's a kind of the cultural center of, of, of all of, of Asia Minor at that time. And, and, you know, the first church, think of it like this. The first church was Ephesus. And, and think of that as, as more of kind of the San Jose commercial empire area, you know. And then, and then you had Smyrna, which we talked about last week. And, and think of that as, as the, you know, the San Francisco, the, the happening place. And then you have Pergamum, which is a lot like Berkeley. All the religious ideas came out of this this area. Um, You know, a huge library and huge coliseums and all this. This is where the philosophers would go, and this is one of the coliseums that were kind of built into the side of the hill there at Pergamum. All the religious ideas came from there. You know, they had a huge library, only second to the library in Alexandria. Alexandria. The elite intellectuals came to this this town with the great library, and they had more temples to so many different gods than anywhere else in the world at the time. So Pergamum had a few other things that no one else did. So when Jesus says, I know where you live, it's where Satan has his throne, you understand what he's talking about people are worshiping all these different gods and that's what satan wants to do to us he wants to compromise us so we start putting our time effort and energy into all these different things other than god and that's what satan was doing there was four different i mean there's a bunch of different shrines but there's four main shrines in the area the first one was an altar to zeus In 240 B.C., the Greeks won a battle, and and basically they said, our God beat your God because we won the battle, so therefore we're going to build this 800-foot-high, or or this platform up on this 800-foot-high mountain that looked over, kind of a high spot of the the town that looked over the town. This thing is 400-foot long, and it had a 40-foot-tall altar shaped like a seat, and on it, incense burned day and night. So on top of the, you know, above the city, above the town, you have this, this big old seat that that, that just kind of burns smoke all day long, day and night, to the god Zeus. Here's, a, here's another image of this. The Germans excavated this site in the late 1800s, and they literally... Tore it apart piece by piece, and, and somebody was really good a detail-oriented person and labeled everything. And they took it back to Germany. It's in a museum in Germany now. And, you know, so there's the big fight. You know, Turkey wants it back. Germany doesn't want to give it back. You know, all those things that, you know, the great Germans and English did. They, they took everything and put in their museums. The scene, uh, 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 you know, on the front of us, it, it was the scene of the battle that they won. And here's a, a, another scene of that. So day and night, you have this smoking thing up on the top. The, the highest throne basically say our God is the biggest and best God there is. Now, the second throne that they had, and I know I'm going to mispronounce this. This is a secret. You know, it's the God of healing. Usually when it comes to these names, I write them how they sound in my notes because I learned by phonics. And uh, I didn't do that one on this one. But it's basically the the God of healing. It's the chief God of the city, which is ironic since you had so many other huge altars around. But every town would kind of have the founding founding God of the town. And and they had one. This is who it was. And this is a temple that everyone would come to visit. It was the closest thing to a hospital that the ancient world had. They would study how to heal people. Very mystical. You know the symbol of of medicine today. It has the pole with the two snakes going around it, right? Where do you think that comes from? Pergamum. It comes from this town. That's where that symbol comes from. It's a symbol of medicine. You know, Christianity and snakes, not really a good combination, is it? I mean, the very first encounter with a snake was, was Satan himself in the Bible. So you have a giant snake and a smoking temple to Zeus. So you start to understand why they called Satan's place. And this little church is trying to live in this culture. Now, the third temple was a temple to Caesar. And this was special because you know, they allowed some of these to be built in only certain places. So you had to be like, in favor with Rome and with the Caesars. And the, first, you know, the very first emperor basically said, don't, don't, don't worship me. Later on, you had guys like Nero and, and, and others that said, yeah, worship me. And they, and they, you know, I'm a god, worship me. So they built these shrines. So by the time that John wrote Revelation... It was a test of loyalty to the Roman Empire. You could worship any god you wanted to as long as you came once a year and worshipped Caesar and admit that Caesar was the ultimate god. So once a year, he had to travel to the city and, and to this temple. And It was a huge temple of shiny white marble, and they burned incense day and night. So I mean, you got these incense going all over the town, all over the city. And you had to say, Caesar is God of all the universe, Lord of all creation, deserving all praise and honor and glory. That's pretty screwed up, isn't it? Especially coming from from a Christian belief, from you know, those that believe that Jesus was the, the Savior. And they would have to do this. So what happens if you're a Christian living in the town of Pergamum and once a year you're supposed to do this? You're supposed to say, "I have," you know, with God you're supposed to say, I have no other God before me. Christians were executed for not doing this. Many of them kind of went on vacation at this time of the year, you know what I mean? Let's just get out of town. Little church in the place of Darkness. In this culture of idolatry and all kinds of pagan worship, you know, somehow Antipas, uh, this guy that they were talking about, was killed for not worshiping the emperor. And it should have scattered the church. In fact, that's why they did it, because they wanted the church to scatter. Man, you would think that they would go, man, just, just let Satan have this talent. You know, I, my wife and I, we lived up in the Bay Area for, for many years, and, man, you almost felt like that sometimes. Uh, my brother came into town, and at least his best friend, and we decided to go into San Francisco and, for the weekend, and it was like a couple of years after we moved here, and we didn't know all the ins and outs and, and stuff about different celebrations they had at, at different times of the year, and we happened to go into town on the gay pride uh, parade uh, weekend, And we took a wrong turn and saw things that we didn't really want to see. You almost want to go just hand it over to Satan. But this little church, even when others probably just gave up, this small church hung in there, learning the word, staying together. You can understand where it says, Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. These guys lived there, and they were holding on to the true God in a place that wanted to literally destroy them. Now, this fourth shrine that's, that's on the screen here is uh, Seraphim, and, and, and it's a temple to the ancient Egyptian god of the underworld. And it was erected in the lower city of Pergamum. So, I mean, you kind of understand. It was way down there. It was, you know, the underworld. So they found the lowest spot for it. I mean, what would you do if you lived in the city? I man? you would run, wouldn't you? That's what I would probably do. But this little church. And in 95 AD, Jesus says to John, Take a letter. And he says... Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. You're holding on against all odds, against this time, against this culture, this culture that wants to destroy you. Jesus would go on to to say in the church of Pergamum, you have hung on, but there's a couple of small problems that I want to talk to you about. Verse 14, it says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who took Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food, sacrificed to idols, and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, unless you know your Old Testament, this this really means nothing to you. But this is one of those stories that that I really love. Jesus says to them, the same problem you and I have. You live in a world where the environment is hostile to what you believe, especially to your spiritual beliefs, especially to those things, those fundamental things you hold on to. And the first thing that that Satan wants you to do is to compromise. Jesus says, this is how I want you to live. This is what I want you to believe in. This is how I want you to do things. This is how you should make decisions. Here's some rules to live by that will get you further in in this earth to becoming more like me. And we take those things and we grab the world and we try to mesh them together. You know, I play a lot with Play Doh nowadays. What happens if you take two different color Play Dohs and you mesh them together? It changes things, doesn't it? It changes the colors. My little son, he loves bath time right now, and that's a good thing. Because he has these little color things he throws in the water. And he, he, al- he always gets two different colors and he throws one in and it changes the, the bathtub to one color and then he likes to throw in the other one and watch it change colors. It changes things when you take two different things and put them together. You soon realize they don't fit so well. The ideals are, are not practical to the world. So we take the ideals of God and what do we do? We put them up on our bookshelf. So people can walk into our house and go, oh wow, that's, oh, that's so nice up there. And we leave it up there for a week, and then on Sunday we run to that bookshelf, and we pack it all away, and then we go to worship God. And then we go back and we put it back on that bookshelf, because it looks so nice there. Compromise, just like Pergamum. Because on Monday we're back into the world. We laugh at the jokes that aren't godly. Or, oh, wait, wait, today's world. We repost the things that are ungodly on Facebook. You know, I was amazed this week. Um, I, I've said this before. I'm not one of those that, that believes that, that all Catholics are going to hell. Um, I, I do have some issues with the Catholic faith and, and some of their belief systems. And, you know, I don't believe that the Pope becomes infallible. Uh, so when was he infallible? Right before the vote, right after the vote, you know, but I was amazed as I was watching the news at how many newspaper, how many commentaries, how many news guys and, and all the commentators and all these all these different things that were not happy that the the Pope you know the, this current Pope was chosen. Because he's not gonna move the church forward in today's world. So You don't want a Catholic pope to be a Catholic pope, apparently. You want the Catholic pope who believes certain fundamental things to become the world pope. You see what I'm saying? That's what they want. They want compromise. They don't want fundamental beliefs. See, our tendency in a hostile world is to compromise, and that was what was happening in Pergamum. They had gone the way of Balaam, and you have to go back to the fourth book of the Bible to find this story. And I love this story. The Israelites are led through the wilderness for forty years, and and you know, and they get into the Promised Land, and it's a four hundred years since they'd been in the Promised Land. And in the land, there's there's all these evil empire uh, empires, and there's immorality, and they're corrupt, and they're unjust, and they got disgusting practices. And they have child sacrifice and all these different things that we would just go, you got to be joking. And they were doing these things in the promised land. And God says, go in there and take the land and get rid of those people. I've given them 400 years to repent. They haven't done it, so get rid of them. So they go in the land, and God provided for them in the promised land. They won battle after battle after battle. And the Moabite king was scared of what was coming. So he goes and he says, Man, we, we, Guys, we've we got to stop them somehow. How do we stop them? And they said, Hey, go get Balaam the prophet. Maybe he can come curse them. So Balaam shows up. Or actually, they go to Balaam, and, and Balaam goes... Okay, well, well, let me go pray about this. And Balaam goes and prays, and God says, Don't you dare curse them, because I've blessed them already. You can't curse those that I've already blessed. So Balaam says, Sorry, guys, it's not going to work. I'm not going to come curse them. So they go back and tell the Moabite king. The Moabite king sends back gold and silver and all these wonderful things that, that we all love, don't we? We love gold and silver, or big bank account, okay. Or for those that collect gold and silver, you love that too. But we love all those things. So, I mean, he was, you know, Balaam was sitting there going, what do you got there? Ooh, that that looks looks great. Well, let me go ask God again. So he goes back and he asks God and God says, don't you even think about it. And Balaam says, but I'm thinking about it. And God says, fine, go with him, but don't open your mouth. So Balaam gets on his donkey. I mean, they're on these big, huge, you know, horses because, I mean, these are the king's men, right? And Balaam gets on his little donkey. He's all decked out in his prophet clothes. And they all go down the trail, and they're going, and all of a sudden his donkey just turns and goes off in the middle of the field. And they're like, can't you control your donkey, man? And he's beating the donkey, and he gets it back to the path. Well, what made him turn off the path? Well, there was an angel there. Saying, don't go forward. And the, and the donkey could see the angel, but Balaam was just ignoring it. He closed his eyes to God so he couldn't see it. So this happens a couple of more times. And finally, the donkey, they get down into a canyon. It's kind of like a slot canyon. And you can only go so far. And, it, you know, and the donkey, you know, it's closing in on you. and you, Only one person can go at a time. And finally, you know, when you're riding on a donkey, because it's not like a horse that's really big, you gotta have to fold your legs underneath to hold on to it. Have you ever done donkey basketball? I've seen that. It's hilarious. It's a great fundraiser that a lot of high schools do and stuff. So I've actually ridden a, a, a donkey, and you've got to wrap your legs underneath. Well, Balaam had done this. And, and man, he, he gets in the canyon, and the donkey just sits down right on his legs. Well, he's hopping mad. Well, he, well, he can't really hop, but he's beating the donkey because the donkey's sitting on his legs. And the donkey basically turns around and looks at him and says, what do you think I am, an idiot? You're going to die if you keep going forward. And, and what amazes me is Balaam talks back to the donkey. He doesn't even freak out that the donkey's talking. <laughs> I don't get that. Maybe he's all, well, no, I'm not going to go there. Okay. But Balaam is totally embarrassed. And he finally gets there and he, he can't curse him. He says, guys, I can't curse him. I can't do this. But let me tell you, all that gold and silver, remember the gold and silver? Big bank account? Well, if you go ahead and give me that, I can tell you how to do it. I can't curse them, but I can tell you how to do it. You go get your young women that have the Moabite ways, the child sacrifice, the immorality, and all that kind of stuff, and you entice the men. See, Moabites worshiped their God through sex. So they went and got all the temple prostitutes and brought them over to Israel. Israel became a nation that was corrupted. It worked. And for generations, the name Balaam would be remembered. Not many kids were named Balaam anymore. But 95 AD, 1,500 years after Balaam, God is saying, people are in your midst and they're compromising for the sake of money and wealth and power. What they believe in is a compromise. They're changing their values, not toward God, but away from God. If you're a young person sitting here, you understand what I'm saying if you're in school. You change your value. The school, the high schoolers, and the junior highers want to drag you to a point where your values are not what you should believe in. Oh, you go to your parents' church. It's not even your church as far as they're concerned. Your parents must drag you there. There's no way you can believe that stuff. (coughs) I love the, sometimes I I watch certain news programs, and I, I love when they say, they actually believe this stuff. And they're just so they they can't even understand that we would believe in purity. They can't understand that we would re- believe in not compromising. They can't understand that we can believe in not going out and sinning all the time. Verse 16 he says, "Repent therefore" Otherwise, I will, come, uh, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, when Jesus speaks, it's a sharp sword that can destroy. I will come in and I will fight against them. The truth. You see, the sword cuts to the truth. My son wants to grab the knives that are really sharp on my counter, and we never let him. Why? The truth is, it will cut him. It will cut down to the bone. It will cause issues. Well, when Jesus comes in, sometimes he cuts down to the bone, and it causes issues. If you have people in your midst that compromise, tell them, I'm going to come, and I'm going to wage war against him, Jesus is saying. See, this is when I'm happy that Jesus is the Jesus of truth, but also the Jesus of grace, the Jesus of mercy, the Jesus of healing, and the Jesus of restoration. Because when we find ourselves being cut with the truth and we're bleeding, His mercy and grace and healing comes right, right beyond that and starts taking care of us. But sometimes it hurts to be cut. Sometimes Jesus has to come in and use the sword of truth in my life and your life to get us to see the truth of what's been going on. And we need to say, thank you, Jesus, even though it hurts. Because going the way of Balaam is what? Going the way of, of, on the path of destruction. And I think too often we ignore the path of destruction. Too often we just, we, it's one little compromise, a little compromise, a little compromise, a little compromise. I'm trying to lose weight. Brandon keeps eating these Oreo cookies. Oh, they're so good. But I've learned one thing. If I compromise with one cookie one day and compromise with one cookie the next day and I compromise with one cookie the, the next day after that, I, I soon find myself not losing weight. One little compromise, it adds up. They were, you know, Balaam was blinded by greed, he was blinded by opportunity, he was blinded by compromise. Jesus says in verse 17, "He who has an ear let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes I will give some of the hidden I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it." When I read this, you know, I think, you got to be kidding. You have this little church living amongst the devil's throne, Satan's throne. I mean, living in the worst conditions, in other words, the worldly conditions. The world is against them. The city is against them. Some of them are going through pain. Some of them are dying. Some of them are suffering. And all they get is a white rock, a white stone. So I had to do a study to find out what this means. Because it meant something to, to Jesus, it meant something to John, it meant something to the church in Pergamum. In their culture, there was three meanings for a white stone. Their first meaning was your life." If you were charged with a crime, the judges would have two stones in their backs, and they would pull out the black stone for guilty and the white stone for innocence. And when Jesus says he will give you a white stone, that means you were innocent of the sins of this world. It doesn't matter what happened. It doesn't matter the sin that's in your life. It doesn't matter the pain that you've gone through, the mistakes you've made, the guilt that you have, or the shame that you have. Because you step into God's presence, you are not guilty. You are my child. You are not guilty. I love that. Now, the second interpretation of this, and, and the research led to Olympic cha- champion. You know, a lot of them would, would get the crowns of the, the, the olive reef on, on their head and stuff. But when you went to the home city, the, there was kind of this tradition. You would receive this white stone. And, and don't think of a little bitty stone. Think of a white stone. And on it would be carved your name and what, what uh, Olympic thing that you won in. And the, and, and the year that you won it. And for the rest of your life, you paid no taxes for you and your family. Wouldn't you love that? A few extra dollars in a pocket. You got free food when you wanted to go down to the huge theater. You didn't have to pay to get in. You had choice seats. You had everything because you were the champion of that town. Imagine Jesus giving you a white stone. And from that point on, you have the freedom to live. All eternity is free. Now, the third meaning in ancient times was a covenant between friends. You would take a rock and you would, on one side you would carve your name and on the other side you would carve their name. And from that day forward, anytime you showed up into to town, you always take, took your rock with you. Because when you showed up and you went to the family door and you knocked on the door, you would match up the rocks and if the rocks would, would match up the two halves, they were to treat you like family. If you were to be housed, you were to be fed, you were to be taken care of. If you gave this rock to a friend to go into that town, they would be treated like family. This would go on for generations. So, sixth, seventh, eighth generation show up to the house. I've never seen you before. I got the rock. Oh, wow. I think I've seen that before. And they go dust it off and bring it out and they match it up and they take care of you. Jesus says to us, when you get to heaven, you will get a stone. It's the ultimate friendship. And when you walk in with that stone, you get an audience with Jesus. And he welcomes us to heaven. And it's got a new name on it that only he knows and only you know. And if you have a good friend, you've you know grown up with a childhood friend, you have these inside things. This is what we're talking about, where you just kind of look at each other and kind of smile. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. That's what Jesus is saying. You're going to have that connection with Him from that day forward. You will have a new name. God is saying, "I have a relationship with you and you alone." You're not just 3,400,012. You're not just a number. Get your ticket for heaven. Okay, here's your number. No. God knows you and knows your name. He even has, I mean, I dare say, a pet name for you. A little inside joke. Relationship with you and you alone. No one can take your place. It's for you and you alone. You're not just a number to God. And I dare say so many of us bring compromise into our life to a point where we feel like we're just a number because we don't have the relationship with him. I'll tell you what I believe. I believe that if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and died for your sins, and He was raised from the dead, and now He's on the throne in heaven, then you have a white stone waiting for you when you get to heaven. I also believe that His Holy Spirit is living in you. And our job here on this earth is to tap into that power of Christ, tap into the power of God, to help us not compromise in this life. And it's a hard thing to do because we will compromise and it's our job to recognize when we do compromise and say, God, forgive me for that and then get back on the right path. But too often we go down the path and we forget the forgive me God and we just want the prize at the end. And God's saying, I've got a life that is just unbelievable for you here on this earth, not to mention in heaven, if you would just follow me. Just come back to me. A submission to him. A willingness to be used by him. A willingness to to live for him. Because it's more than just a ticket to heaven. It is a ticket to a life of blessing here on this earth. A blessing of knowing you are in God's will. And understanding who God is. A blessing of being where God wants you in this life. God is saying, I don't care what hurts you have, what pain you're either in or gone through, what damage has been done to you by others, or what damage you have done to others. See, we want to be a place where we can say you're welcome amongst us. Because everyone who walks through those doors is a possible champion for Christ that no one can take their place. Because once you receive the white stone, once you receive uh, that, it can't be taken away. You can be God's champion here on this earth. And He will bless you if you follow Him. Let's pray. Lord, I ask for forgiveness for, for so many different compromises within our church. So many different compromises within individuals that are sitting here. Sometimes we forget our place. We forget that you're the God on your, on your throne, that you, you saved us. And we forget to come to you and ask for forgiveness. So we ask for that forgiveness now. And I pray that you help set us on a path. A path that is, that is lit up by your Holy Spirit a path that has been set forth, that's been deemed that we should go down, that it not be a compromising path. I pray that when we compromise, we recognize that compromise and come back to you. And I thank you in advance for your forgiveness. I thank you that you look at us, you know, through rose-colored glasses, that you look at us through Jesus' blood that was spilled for us, and you see purity, You don't see brokenness. You don't see shame. You don't see hurts. You don't see pains. You see the purity of what we are and who we are to you. And you just love us so much. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. And may he give you rest in this world that is so weary that wants us to compromise. May he give you the strength to hold firm to what you believe. And may His face never turn from you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.